A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Through a 21st century lens, the long lineage of U.S. presidents is a startling assembly. All men, of course, with one famous and notable exception, all white. Many born of astonishing privilege. A handful were celebrated leaders, a few masters of oratory, others brilliant legislative and judicial minds. A few of them were acknowledged visionaries. A whole bunch of them were certainly not. But without exception, they are flawed human beings, and a few in deeply uncomfortable ways. For perspective, it's always fun to turn to the presidential rankings, grading on qualities like crisis leadership, international relations, moral authority, and administrative skills, among others. How did they handle the economy, the military? What were their racial attitudes? That one can stick in your craw. More than half of U.S. presidents were open white supremacists. When the scores are tallied, it's always the stars at the top. Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, Roosevelt, JFK. Lower down, way lower down on the list, are the antebellum presidents. Fillmore, Pierce, Tyler, Taylor, that whole crowd. And one name never seems to escape the lowest of the failing grades. Basement dweller James Buchanan, 15th President of the United States. Hail to the Chief. course of events is so rapidly hastening forward that the emergency may soon arise when you may be called upon to decide the momentous question whether you possess the power by force of arms to compel a state to remain in the Union. I should feel myself recreant to my duty were I not to express an opinion on this important subject. The question fairly stated is, has the Constitution delegated to Congress the power to coerce a state into submission, which is attempting to withdraw, or has actually withdrawn from the Confederacy. If you are as happy on entering the White House as I on leaving, you are a very happy man indeed. Hey, hello, it's American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman, and today we march onward in our presidential series as we finally reached the pivotal administration of James Buchanan, our 15th president, 1857 to 1861. Franklin Pierce was just prior, Abraham Lincoln will be next, 
And ready or not, here it comes, the Civil War. If for no other reason, the single-term presidency of James Buchanan provides an excellent means to most clearly comprehend the immediate causes of that conflict. America in the Buchanan years became a tinderbox ready to spark. The process, of course, had been underway for 20 years or more. The abolitionist movement took off back in the 1830s. The controversies and conflicts of westward expansion, the forced migrations of indigenous peoples, war with Mexico, manifest destiny, and tremendous prosperity in the north from industrialization, in the south from enslaved agrarian labor, all these elements provide the backdrop to Buchanan's rise. In so many ways, what his Democratic Party was propagated to do in the early 19th century under Andrew Jackson is in full flower in the garden of James Buchanan. But when the climate suddenly shifts, we see how ill-equipped the Democrats and their president are to cope with stormy weather. So, James Buchanan. Today we are speaking with Dr. Ian Iverson, historian of American politics and society and associate editor of the John Dickinson Writings Project. His book, Holding the Political Center in Illinois. Greetings, Dr. Iverson. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. It's commonly called the presidency that triggered the Civil War. 1857, the United States edging towards the abyss. We are, in this conversation, going to talk about enslavement, bleeding Kansas, secession, and war. And in the middle of all this is a guy named James Buchanan, who somehow believes he can hold it all together. How so? Why was he the man for the moment? So Buchanan enters office as one of the best qualified presidents in American history. He had more than 30 years of relevant experience. He had served as a member of the House of Representatives, as a U.S. Senator, as U.S. Minister to Russia as U.S. Minister to Great Britain, and as Secretary of State. So he certainly has the political chops heading into this. That being said, he faces some pretty stark challenges as he enters office. He's just won a three-way race against John C. Fremont and Miller Fillmore, with Fremont championing the new Republican Party, whose goal was to use federal power to restrict the extension of slavery into the territories. And this was something that Buchanan feared would tear the Union apart. For now, some biographical notes about his life. You mentioned an extraordinary career, really. He goes from common man to elite politician, state house to Congress, goes from being a Federalist to a Democrat. Back in the Jacksonian era, this guy's been at this for 30 years or more. He is a Northerner, but he's from Pennsylvania, to this day a hotbed of states' right thinking. Big resentment of federal overreach. A swing state even then, back then. And he's old for the day. When he assumes the presidency, he's 66. He's made a career fully invested in this Jacksonian outlook. It really is this America that is going to collide with the new Republican Party. And for that to happen, the Democrats are going to end up divided among themselves. All of this, James Buchanan stands over, you know, that as president. This is what he is shepherding forth. It's amazing. I think it's fair to say that Buchanan sees himself as the man for this moment, as someone who has this experience stretching far back into the Jacksonian period. He had seen the Democratic Party's rise and believed that he could take the party into this new era. He recognized that with the collapse of the Whigs and the rise of the Republicans, that they were entering a new political era. But he saw it as an era in which the Democrats could have a supermajority over the country that. But if he was able to put the slavery issue to rest once and for all, that the Democrats would enjoy um, unrivaled political supremacy, that their opponents would kind of wither away. What's his general demeanor as a man? Are we able to know? I mean, we finally have photography. He's a good-looking guy, good dresser, wealthy lawyer type. What's he like? So people who meet Buchanan have very mixed reviews. Some find him charming and very personable. Others think he comes off as a little cold or aloof. It seems to depend on what sort of setting he's in. It seems that 
in, in more private, intimate settings. He's quite congenial. He's likable. He gets along well with both men and women. He's, as I'm sure we'll discuss, our only bachelor president, but he, he gets along well with members of both sexes. In these formal situations in which he's you know, spent much of his life as a public functionary, he can come across as a little cold, a little aloof, but he's generally well-liked by those who know him. A decisive guy or a compromiser? What's he kind of known for in his political style? So... Buchanan is somebody who goes along to get along. He's willing to strike deals. He believes in an affective theory of union, so that the union is based around mutual affection and a love between the states. And he sees his role as, as perpetuating that. And so he's been keen throughout his career to listen very closely to his Southern colleagues and to take their considerations into account and to try to meet them halfway or even more. Interesting. That's really the the general view of the federal government at this time, isn't it? I mean, we've had three presidents like him sort of in a row here. It's a minimalist view of, of federal government, understandable. That's how they see things. But it's also kind of like an abdication of getting involved in these hot and heavy decisions. So he's a typical guy, isn't he? Yeah, I think his view of states' rights is, is pretty typical for the day. Among Democrats generally, and even among Northern Democrats, there's a sense that the federal government's role should be quite limited, and that most decisions that affect ordinary people's lives should be made on the state level. Okay, so bleeding Kansas, the term comes from the fact that it's there's been a division there for a number of years between anti- and pro-slavery forces. Literally, it is a guerrilla war. I mean, very, very bloody things going on there. It eventually leads to two separate state governments in Kansas, one in Topeka, one in Lecompton, two different constitutions even. Buchanan's position, and he says so right in the inauguration, Congress is neither to legislate slavery into any territory or state nor exclude it from therefrom, but leave the people free to form their own domestic institutions. Then, bear with me, when the territory of Kansas shall be admitted as a state, it shall be received into the Union with or without slavery, as their constitution may prescribe at the time of commission. But he's choosing one constitution over the other, isn't he? He is. So, as you said, there are these two rival governments, and the pro-slavery territorial government based in Lecompton is the one that has been recognized, and this stretches back to the Pierce administration. And as pro-slavery Kansans, who are a minority of the white settlers in Kansas, begin drafting this state constitution they pretend to give the voters of Kansas a choice. And they say, well, you can adopt this state constitution which protects slavery and allows for slavery to exist within Kansas, or you can adopt the state constitution which accepts but limits slavery. So it allows for those who are already enslaved within Kansas to remain enslaved and for their offspring to remain enslaved perpetually. So they have a, you have a choice of accepting the constitution with slavery or the constitution with a little less slavery, but there is no constitution without slavery option that's presented to voters. And anti-slavery Kansans, free soil Kansans, reject this false choice and boycott the election at which they're going to decide whether or not to adopt this state constitution, proposed state constitution. And as a result, only pro-slavery voters vote in that election. So it passes, uh, you know, it receives a majority, an overwhelming majority from this minority population, and is sent on to the federal government. And it's here that Buchanan has to make a choice as to whether this represents popular sovereignty or not, because a majority of Kansans have not actually voted on this state constitution. Hmm. You know, I feel like I want to apologize to the audience. We're talking about a U.S. president, federal government situation here, but we're so much in the weeds about Kansas. But that's why I mentioned in the inaugural address, it is right there at the forefront of everything. So the irony is that this president would like to stay out of 
the states and not do anything about it, leave it to them, is actually talking a lot about the states. That's how present Kansas is in the being the tipping point on the way to civil war. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, and it's really interesting how Buchanan reacts to all this because he's appointed a, a territorial governor out there, uh, Robert J. Walker, who has a long history in the Democratic Party and served as a U.S. senator from Mississippi. And Walker is pro-popular sovereignty, has never been shy about defending slavery at the national level, but sees what's happening here and tells Buchanan, this is a fraud, that this is not a, uh, a legitimate um, expression uh, of the people's will. And Buchanan basically says, I don't care. We need to get we need to get beyond this and we're going to push the Lecompton Constitution through Congress. This attitude of James Buchanan is going to permeate his entire tenure. Am I wrong or right about that? Certainly. Buchanan believes that there needs to be decisive action on this question. I had said that he's he's the kind of person who, who goes along to get along. And that's true, but it's because he can sense that there's tremendous pressure from the Southern wing of his party, the dominant wing of his party, to move beyond this slavery question, to shut it down once and for all. They're tired of talking about it, and they want the federal government to make a clear and unequivocal stance that they will allow slavery to expand into the territories in what they see as an equitable manner. That there had been more of an appetite in, in the years of the early republic for the restriction of slavery, and the belief that the institution was for the moment, a necessary evil, but would eventually wither and die on its own. The, the sort of wheels of history would turn and we'd be able to get beyond this. And that's an attitude that many Northerners held for decades and, and up until the Civil War, that they hoped that the institution where it existed would eventually wither and die. That's actually Abraham Lincoln's position, the position of most in the Republican Party. But what they begin to see is that they can't expect this institution to wither and die unless it's restricted to a certain portion of the country. His position on Kansas and, and all of which transpires, how does that affect things uh, politically in this country? His own Democratic Party has to handle this. In what way? Right. Well, it breaks the Democratic Party as a national institution. And so Stephen Douglas, another leading Northern Democrat, the de facto leader of the Northern Democrats, because Buchanan was effectively a Southern Democrat at this point, takes a stand against Lecompton says that this is not what we meant by popular sovereignty. We meant that the white settlers of Kansas were going to get to up an up or down vote on this question of whether or not to allow slavery. And they did get that. And so Douglas uses all of his political influence. He's not able to block it in the Senate, but he is able to, his al he and his allies, Douglas is serving in the Senate, but his allies in the House are able to block it there. This creates an impasse and, and Buchanan promises to destroy Douglas politically. Douglas is facing a re-election campaign in 1858, uh, what becomes a very famous re-election campaign in Illinois. But Buchanan isn't able to break through this core coalition of anti-Lecompton Democrats, Republicans, and know-nothings. There ends up being a compromise that is really a defeat for Buchanan. It's the passage of the so-called English Bill, named after a congressman from Indiana, in which they send the Lecompton Constitution back to the voters of Kansas nominally over the issue of how much public land the state is going to receive, but it's really offering another chance to, to vote up or down on the, on the Constitution, and Kansans reject it overwhelmingly. It's incredible how much Kansas is the earthquake that changes everything, knocks everything down. It resonates through to today. I find myself saying this in every antebellum presidency we've covered. These issues come through to today. You know, how much does the federal government step in to fix things or address things anyway? versus this whole tide against it. That is really the central American dilemma in political science, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question, certainly the size and scope of the federal government and the arguments around it change over time. And it's a hard thing to put onto a modern political spectrum on in terms of left and right. But there's certainly an ongoing debate from the years of the early republic onward as to what is the appropriate size and scope of the federal government. Well, we haven't gotten to the Great Depression. Just wait till that happens. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ian, let's get off the subject of Kansas for a moment and back to the man himself. His personal life was an issue. Almost married when he was young, but his betrothed died young. There's a little anecdote about him appealing to that woman's father about uh, going to her funeral, and he refused his attendance. I mean, it's very dramatic, all this. He's single his whole life, which, of course, fueled rumors. Any truth to those rumors as history has panned out? You know, it's really hard to say as to whether Buchanan was what we would call today gay. It's unclear. Buchanan had a deep, intimate relationship with William Rufus King, a politician originally from North Carolina, Alabama, briefly served as Franklin Pierce's vice president before his untimely death. You know, we know that the two of them were very, very close. As to whether or not they had a sexual relationship, the documentary record doesn't provide any evidence of that. So anyone who says otherwise is, I wouldn't say speculating, but is inferring beyond what the documentary record tells us. I mean, everybody was talking behind their backs. You know, the Andrew Jackson called him, I don't know, fancy, Nancy Fancy or something like that. I mean, it was comments about his, Rufus King's effeminate quality and so forth. Who knows? Men in those days, I mean, it was a whole different kind of judgment of that sort of thing, wasn't it? Right. And the other thing to remember is that those sort of intimate male friendships were more common at the, in that period, and, and especially among members of Congress who were uh, in Washington together, usually not around a lot of women. Most members or many members of Congress, at least, did not bring their wives with them to Washington. Congress was meeting for limited periods during the year. These men would all live together in boarding houses. And it's, well, it's an exaggeration to say that these were frat house-like environments. These were environments in which it was a lot of men away from women spending long hours together, drinking too much, 
And they developed very close bonds, such that you would maybe see in, in fraternity brothers today. And so the, these sort of deep, intimate relationships between men would often last you know, for decades. And so Buchanan's relationship with King is notable, but it's not unheard of for the period. We hear his language is so ideological in the inauguration, but how much is it driven by the friendships and relationships in Washington? I think that the friendships and the ideology reinforce each other, right? So the Buchanan's closest friends are the Southerners who have very hardline ideological stances. And I think he takes those in and then puts it back out into the world. And so as he has these, you know, long intimate dinners with Southern colleagues, I think it's reinforcing what he's already predisposed to believe. And they continue to support him. That's, you know, he sees these people as his friends, as his allies, and as the key to holding the country together. One thing that will, he gets a big old flunking grade for, among others, was how he handled the crisis of secession. This happens, obviously, later in his presidency, the Southern states officially declaring they have left the Union. This happened as a result of Lincoln's election. I'll go through the list. November 1860, he's elected. First one is gone in December 1860, that's South Carolina. Six more states follow, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana, January to, to February 1861. I mean, wow. Inside of the first three months after Lincoln is elected, there are seven states gone. We've gone from 33 states to 26. How does Buchanan handle this in this period? I mean, what's his reaction to secession? Well, he, he blames it entirely on the Republicans. He says that this is sort of the inevitable result of, of the Republicans pushing this anti-slavery platform, that now you've scared the southern states out of the Union. And while he doesn't recognize the constitutional validity of secession, he also doesn't think that the federal government can do anything to coerce the states back into the Union. And so he, he says, well, you know, and part of this is he, he's also a lame duck. He has a limited amount of time to do anything. But he says effectively that my hands are tied. I can't do anything. I can't take any action constitutionally to, to bring the states back to the Union. This is a constitutional crisis. The only thing that we can do is to try to bring delegates from the states together to come to some sort of resolution. And so he supports those sort of national peace efforts, which are being um, encouraged, especially by men from the upper South. So these are the, the Southern states that have not yet seceded, but are sort of on the cusp and are trying to patch together some sort of compromise to keep the Union together, to bring the seceded states back into the Union. We covered that on the John Tyler episode. He becomes this ex-president who steps up at this time of crisis. He's from Virginia. Virginia doesn't secede until June of uh, 1861. And um, there were conferences going on throughout the winter into the spring about how do we avoid this whole thing. One can uh, understand how James Buchanan, certainly with his politi political outlook on the country, how he would step back and not want to be too intrusive, being that he's a lame duck. But on the other hand, the country is falling apart. And that's pretty dangerous. Right. And, and Buchanan is just really ill-equipped for this moment of crisis. And the men that he has trusted the most, men like Howell Cobb, his secretary of the treasury, now leave him. They're Southerners, cops from Georgia, and they resign. They go to their states. And so Buchanan does replace his outgoing cabinet members with men of Cerner stuff. Edwin Stanton joins Buchanan's cabinet briefly, and Stanton plays a much larger role during Lincoln's administration. And so the, he does end up with some backbone in the final days of his presidency. And Buchanan takes some limited action. He actually tries to resupply Fort Sumter. That ship is um, turned away after being fired upon by cadets from the Citadel in South Carolina. But it's really pretty marginal. And he's waiting out the clock for the last month or so of his presidency. 
It's fascinating to understand that at this moment of supreme crisis, a president who most represents the ideology of as little federal government as possible is the guy in power. You couldn't write this stuff. It's, it's exactly what the screenplay would be. So it's setting the table for someone who has to take an entirely different attack on this, which is Abraham Lincoln, who sees, you know, an expanding federal government as the only issue. But what's fascinating about a Buchanan is it's almost like he would have accepted two countries. Was he on the side? I mean, has it been suspected? I know he was called a doe face. Were politicians of this time, let alone presidents, suspected of taking sides in this thing before it even happened? Well, I think it's unfair to say that Buchanan wanted there to be two countries. He certainly wanted to preserve the union. And I think that's the case for almost all Northern Democrats. The question is how you can do that and what constitutes the union. And again, Buchanan subscribed to what's been called the affective theory of union, so that the union is held together based on, on sentiment, right? So that there's mutual affection between the states. If that ceases to exist, then the union effectively ceases to exist, right? That it's a compact among the states. And if the people of the states no longer feel bound together through their ties of affection, through mutual loyalty, through this shared legacy of the American Revolution, then the union really can't exist because the federal government does not have coercive power. And so Buchanan, I think, was deeply troubled by the South's secession. I think it's something that he had long feared and, again, believed that the North was responsible for. And so in that regard, he was taking sides. He, he saw it as the fault of anti-slavery Northerners, but he was uh, ultimately committed to trying to preserve or restore the country, but only through these limited means of compromise or conciliation. So he's, he's really the ultimate appeaser. Yeah. Once the secession happens, how does the country react to him, you know, in the North, certainly? So there's uh, widespread disgust among Republicans towards Buchanan's performance in this period. Lincoln at one point, uh, here's a false rumor that Buchanan has gone ahead and surrendered federal fortifications. And he says, well, if he's done that, then we should hang him. And that's the reaction of a lot of Republicans throughout the North. Democrats, including so Buchanan, have broken with many Northern Democrats. They are more or less with him that the best course is to try to preserve the union through compromise. They believe that secession is illegitimate, but that the best way to restore the union is to avoid bloodshed and to find some sort of solution. So Stephen A. Douglas at this time is working on putting through first the Crittenden Compromise and then other proposed compromises in Congress to try to assure the South that slavery will be protected in states where it already exists, and at least to a certain extent in the territories. But none of it comes together, right? These compromises go nowhere. Yeah. Burned in effigy all over the North. He is judged poorly by history, bottom of the rankings. Fair assessment in your mind? I think so. And it's not only because of how he handled the secession crisis. I mean, I think his indecision there is inexcusable, although it was a crisis that I don't think anyone was prepared to meet. And, and Lincoln in his first weeks in office is, is somewhat paralyzed as well. He does come to a firm decision, but it takes him several weeks to get there. I think where you really want to put, you know, if you're going to blame Buchanan, you need to blame him for how he, throughout his presidency, undermined all of the, you know, potential pathways out of this crisis. So by supporting the Lecompton Constitution, he could have very easily sent the Lecompton Constitution back and said there needs to be a real vote on this. He didn't. He forced the issue and his own political party broke apart. We didn't mention this, but the election of 1860, it's a four-way race because there's both a Northern and a Southern Democrat in the race. There's Stephen A. Douglas, the Northern Democrat, and John C. Breckinridge, Buchanan's vice president, running as the Southern Democrat. 
So by breaking apart this last national institution, you know, the country had been fracturing for decades leading up to this point. If you think about fractures in uh, religious bodies, both the uh, Methodist and Baptist churches had already split along sectional lines. The Whig Party had fallen apart. The Democratic Party was, in a lot of ways, the last national institution. And Buchanan did everything he could to break it and really hastened the coming of the Civil War as a result. There you go, folks. Much of what you've discussed has been will be coming up in our next episode as we begin the story of Abraham Lincoln. A whole nother kettle of fish. Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, Dr. Iverson is a historian of American politics and society, uh, associate editor of the John Dickinson Writings Project. I'm going to look that up. His book, Holding the Political Center in Illinois, Conservatism and Union on the Brink of Civil War, will be published this year in the fall of 2024. Thank you so much for joining us. Really interesting. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of American History Hit. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.